This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to getbrewninja.com and using the code BREWNINJA21. Before we get started, just a friendly reminder that abstract submissions for the 2021 Master Brewers Conference have been extended. If you ran trials at your brewery, if you did something innovative, experienced a major victory, or just solved a problem that another brewer might benefit from hearing about, why not put together a poster or a presentation for the next conference? I can't wait to see what you come up with. Maybe we can even talk about it here on the show. Check the show notes right now for a link on how to get started. And it kind of got us thinking, like, is there something weird about our process that is driving higher magnesium than, than we would expect? Which is interesting and also has obviously implications for the brewing side of things, knowing that the magnesium is going to cause this dramatic bump within potentially those first few minutes um, of the process. This week on the show, we take a deep dive into the impact magnesium can have on the Maillard reactions that happen in the brew house and during malting. My name is Hannah. Uh, I'm currently a PhD candidate looking at the Maillard reaction in sparkling wine, but in relation to this research, I was previously working at Phillips Brewing and Malting Co. I'm Ewan Thompson. I am the founder of Raft Brew Labs in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And like Hannah, I was formerly at Phillips Spring and Malting Company in Victoria, BC. We've covered topics related to Maillard reactions on the a lot on the on different episodes in the past already. But without getting too far into the weeds, how about giving a brief overview of what Maillard reaction is and where it typically occurs in our process? The Maillard reaction is a reaction between reducing sugars and amino acids or proteins or polypeptides, um, and it participates in sort of a multi-step reaction cascade, um, the implications of which at the end have um, sensory and nutritional uh, implications to the beer product or to whatever food product that the Maillard reaction is happening in. Yeah, so these are 
big complex cascades uh, in beer. They think there are hundreds, maybe thousands of different compounds produced through this. And when you start to look at the way that these compounds start to rearrange themselves, you can understand why, because, you know, you've got 20 different amino acids present, uh, a bunch of different sugars present, and they're all reacting with each other and, and rearranging uh, to allow space for additional amino acids and additional sugars to be added in and for these compounds to actually combine with each other. So by the time you get to melanoidins, which are kind of the largest compounds made out of these reactions, uh, you're, you're really making like polymers or kind of repeating units of some of these things. And so, um, yeah, we're, we're really looking at thousands of, of these sorts of compounds. Um, they're really important in the malting process, first of all, because of the kiln step. So you've got a lot of amino acids and, and reducing sugars present in the, in the germinated malt. And when you go to kiln, even with a pale malt kiln, you're still going to have Maillard reactions, Maillard reactions forming. Uh, but then especially when you go into the more um, sort of caramel malts and, and roasted malts, you're going to see that e to an even greater degree because of the, ac the added heat, um, the extra heat that you're seeing. So usually the sweet spot that, that Hannah and I actually learned through our experience with coffee roasting as well was that about 300 to about 330 Fahrenheit is kind of the sweet spot for Maillard reaction formation. So, um, so yeah, so that's kind of where the kilning uh, comes in with malting. So uh, on the brew house side, same, same idea. Um, this all happens in, in a liquid setting, obviously, um, but, but that does not inhibit uh, the Maillard reactions. So you're seeing um, in the brew house boil in particular, but also at the mash step, you're going to have, you're going to have Maillard reactions forming. Cool. So some Maillard reaction products have color and some don't explain that. Yeah. So the ones that we're looking at as significant contributions to browning are these melanoidin compounds or sort of those final big high molecular weight um, compounds. But some of the intermediate products that are formed before that can also contribute sort of like yellow or or some browning pigments as well. Um, but sort of all along the way, those browning compounds also have sensory, sensory contributions. So that's sort of the other side of that as well. Okay. I understand this all started because while working at Phillips Brewing and Malting, you began to notice rather high levels of magnesium in wort samples. Yeah, looking back over our historical routine testing records um, for our metals, which we would usually do about every six months on a finished beer, um, we, we were actually kind of shocked that we hadn't noticed it before because the levels were relatively high. Um, if you look at Charlie Bamforce's paper from about 2010, he really dug into the magnesium levels in beer, uh, in finished beer, and established this sort of bound of about you know 120 milligrams per liter or, or parts per million um, as an upper range for for commercial beers. And so we started to look at our numbers and, and they were right up there into the 120s for sure. And it kind of got us thinking like, is there something weird about our process that is driving higher magnesium than, than we would expect? And so um, we had this malting plant on site at Phillips that, that had been installed a few years pre previous. And, and our lab was really tightly connected with this malting plant. It was part of our quality program um, to, to make sure that the malt was in good shape. So we started going right back through the process to uh, really dig into where the magnesium might be coming from. And, and we found it right, um, right back into the, into the pale malt that was being produced on site at Phillips. One of the first things you did was benchmark against magnesium levels in other beers, 38 different beers to be specific. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, we were just sort of after a bunch of different industry beers to sort of make sure that we, what we were seeing was real. Um, also, just to sort of validate it across other samples. Um, so we collected beers. We had a lot of breweries really generously donate um, some products to us. They were super excited about this, um, as well as going to the liquor store and just stocking up on a lot of beer on the lab budget to run for analysis. Um, yeah, so we basically just wanted to expand the scope to see if what we were seeing was an anomaly just within our product or if it sort of spanned the larger industry as a whole. And through that work, you observed that the all malt beers had significantly higher magnesium than the adjunct beers, right? Yes. So Hannah was uh, collecting all these beers from across Canada. Um, you know, there were breweries sending us beer from all the way on the other side of the of the country in, in Halifax, um, as far away as that. And um, she was uh, racing them over to Camosun College, uh, a nearby uh, teaching college that had a flame absor- atomic absorption spectrometer, a flame atomic absorption spectrometer uh, that she happened to know how to use through her chemistry training, luckily. And so she ran all 38 samples on this um, and uh, and just did a really nice job of, of obtaining reliable and repeatable data out of these samples. Um, and through that, we found that uh, the all malt brews, the ones that we could definitively say were 100% barley malt versus uh, adjunct brewed beers, um, were 33% higher with, with a really tight p-value, so suggesting that statistical significance w- was achieved in that experiment. Cool. I went to Halifax years ago for my spring break of sophomore year in college, which is not the right time to go to Halifax. <laughs> Rather cold there then. It's like the ice the plane. Good place anyway, to get cheap beer though. Yeah, it, it was true. And, and at the time I was not yet 21 in the US. So it was, you know, that's part of the reason I went, I think, because you could drink, you know, 18 or whatever in Canada. So anyway, um, all right. So next you looked at magnesium content of raw materials talk about that yeah so like i said we wanted to look at the uh, full process so we were looking all the way back to the pale malt that we were using in these beers as well as the specialty malts um and and what hannah was doing was uh just essentially making congress mashes out of these and then measuring the magnesium content of these steeped grains. So um, it, we found a, a pretty wide range uh, within the different malts um, of the barley malts that we, that we had available to us there. Um, and then we also ordered a whole bunch more to just to see what sort of levels we would see in adjunct grains. And maybe Hannah, you can comment on that. Yeah, um, the idea being with that was to sort of trace back what we were looking at in the finished beer products, that sample of beers from sort of all over the world, um, looking back to their ingredients, seeing what was used there, and then trying to see if there was any relationship between ingredients and magnesium content, since that's what we found in-house. But yeah, we found some interesting results in there. We found that the organic malted barley had significantly lower magnesium content compared to other different types of the barley samples. Um, And then again, across the board, some of the adjuncts were also very low. So um, we could sort of tie that back in with our beer results that we collected. All right. So how did you form the hypothesis that magnesium was driving Maillard reactions? We spoke with the chemist and his team. So Dr. Scott Scott McIndoe at the University of Victoria 
And, you know, his lab is really into um, chemical reactions in, in a lot of different types of systems. But um, Maillard chemistry is, is uh, certainly within their wheelhouse. So um, a lot of what they do is using uh, mass spectrometry methods. And he had this suspicion that magnesium, um, knowing what it could do in other types of model systems that they worked on, would probably help catalyze or at least accelerate some of the reactions that we might see in beer. And, and being a beer lover himself, he was just over the moon about jumping into this project with us. And uh, so we, we designed it up together and, and had a, a really good group of students working on it at that university with us. Okay, so you set up a few experiments to observe Maillard reaction at various magnesium levels. Talk more about that. Yeah, so one of his students, uh, Isaac Omari, went in and actually did a, a do- effectively what amounts to a dose response curve of magnesium um, in a model system as well as in uh, full strength beer wort. So uh, in the model systems, he's just using an amino acid. So take your pick, really. But uh, we, we chose three different amino acids um, to test individually against maltose. And maltose being the predominant uh, reducing sugar in wort, it made a lot of sense just to, to use these really simple um, model systems in this reductionist experiment. So Isaac went in and just boiled up these, uh, these model systems and looked for color changes. First, he was just doing it kind of qualitatively to see if he could actually observe what was going on and, and then going offline and doing some of the GCMS work, uh, mainly mass spec work, actually. And, um, and he was noticing these yellow color changes uh, when he would boil these mixtures together. Um, so that was the first indication that we were probably getting melanoidin formation. Yeah, so looking at um, single amino acid, single sugar systems for each of the three amino acids that we looked at, um, Isaac was basically looking at this, trying to find out what was being produced, and there wasn't any change in terms of what the findings were from those results. Um, And was that surprising? Yeah, I guess so, because we're expecting, because of the different structures of different amino acids, you'd sort of anticipate um, significantly different structures of, of outputs, but due to just the fact that it's this reaction cascade that we're, even with the single sugar and single amino acid, we're forming intermediates, which can then react back with, say, another maltose unit. Um, just the complexity of that makes it really hard to tease apart exactly what's being formed and in what levels. Their methods in this lab are really geared towards um, finding um, hydrophobic components i believe out of uh, like surfaces of kind of droplets so it's like droplet approach for sampling um i think was really kind of the wrench in the gears for a lot of the analysis that that we felt like we were missing um part of the story so um we turned to uv vis spectra spectrometry at that point and what did that tell you looking at that we could do Um, the dose response curve type thing that you had mentioned, looking at the change in absorbance um, over reaction time with differing magnesium concentrations. Um, So in these model systems, we're basically seeing uh, a rapid increase at the beginning of the reaction time in terms of the amount of browning that's happening. Um, And then it sort of gradually started to level off for all of the different treatments, all the way from two parts per million up to 200. Um, But even though it was higher at 
the higher degree of browning at 200 parts per million of magnesium in these model systems, um, we never really hit a full plateau. Like things were sort of starting to slowly taper off. Um, but that was a sort of interesting finding there is after 110 minutes with this magnesium present in the model systems, we're still seeing a gradual increase in that rate of browning. Okay. Um, you also found that most of that change happened uh, pretty fast though, right? Totally. That was within the first five minute window, I believe, was um, sort of a big jump up, um, which is interesting and also has obviously implications for the brewing side of things, knowing that the magnesium is going to cause this dramatic bump within potentially those first few minutes um, of the process. Coming up, this finding was really shocking. This is where things got really cool. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com mbaa. This episode is also sponsored by More Beer. Visit morebeerpro.com to browse ingredients, equipment, and more. HS Sativa, brought to you by BSG Hop Solutions. Meet the latest in the BSG Hop Solutions portfolio, HS Sativa. Strong expressions of stone fruit, floral, and resinous pine flavors and aromas define this blend. Crafted specifically for use in hazy IPAs and other hop-forward beers. HS Sativa is ideal for aroma, whirlpool, and dry hop additions to hazy and juicy IPAs or for any other hoppy styles where a combination of citrus, tropical fruit, and pine aromatics are desired. Go to bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more, or call 1-800-374-2739. There's one more sponsor I should mention, and that's Fermentis, a global supplier of active dry yeast. You can listen to Kevin and Marcelo talk about the shelf life and performance of active dry yeast on episode 93. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. June 15th, there's a Master Brewers webinar titled Brewing with a Social Mission, Bringing Peace Through Prosperity. There's another webinar June 24th on the topic of minerals and brewing water. July 20th, join John Harris, Kevin Davey, and Andy Morrison for a webinar called Cold IPA Defined, a Deep Dive with the Creators. And the Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course starts August 15th. I really hope we get some in-person district meetings on the calendar soon. There's one big meeting that's on my calendar. I hope it's on yours. The 2021 Master Brewers Conference 
will be October 28th through the 30th in Cleveland. And don't forget the world-famous Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course begins October 31st. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Master Brewers offers a wide range of resources for breweries of all sizes and stages. Stay current on the latest scientific advancements, technical information, and industry trends by joining Master Brewers. Join today and use offer code BEER2021 to save 20% on dues now through December 31st, 2021. Master Brewers, united we brew. Now back to the show. So then you did the same thing, but in a solution that was not just maltose and proline, like in the previous analysis, but what you refer to as the mixed model system. Yeah, basically the same thing. We're seeing the increase across the board, but we're seeing a higher degree of browning in terms of the the darkness, if you will, of the color of brown um, in that model system. And that's likely due to the amount of those amino acids. There's different composition of starting materials. So those are going to be able to react with each other as well. And potentially that may have been what led to sort of a greater degree of polymerization um, or higher browning uh, in that mixed model system. Okay. And then you did it one last time, but this time you used wort, right? Yeah, exactly. So this was to mimic as closely as we could exactly what's happening in the brew house. and sort of even more dramatically there. And that's also likely due to those starting materials being present in in the wort that we're using. Um, but basically across the board, we're seeing that magnesium is positively um, related to the intensity of browning there. This finding was really shocking. Uh, we expected that because there's so much else going on in wort that the simple model systems that we had would not translate directly uh, in the way that they did. But lo and behold, we, we got into the wort system and the exact same dose response was observed in that system. So no matter how much magnesium you added, it always increased the color um, sort of proportionally. And, um, and, and that's exactly what we had seen in the simple model systems before. Did you observe any limit? I mean, can, can you make Schwartz beer if you just keep increasing magnesium? <laughs> that's a great question. I, I think that... Like Hannah alluded to, we did see a limit at about 200 ppm. So if you if you kind of look at the scale, we're jumping up from two to five to 10, 20, 50, 100, and then 200. And so the the difference between each of these is about a twofold increase, roughly, for mostly most of them. Um, and as you see in the very last step between 100 and 200, it does seem to slow down slightly, but um, I, I'm not confident to say that if we had gone to 400 and then 800 after that, that we wouldn't have seen again, big, big jumps in the color formation in that first five, 10 minutes. Why do we think this happens? How is magnesium accelerating Maillard reaction? That's a great question for Hannah. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a lot of different things that can impact the rate of the Maillard reaction. Some of them being things like temperature, um, pH, the composition of reactants, like what types of sugars and amino acids and how much. Um, 
obviously the presence of metals like magnesium that we see here, time, things like that. But um, one of the things that came out of this paper, one of the proposals from the McIndoe group was looking at water activity um, or reduced mobility of the water due to the presence of magnesium and how that might lead to better facilitating that interaction of the sugar and the amino acid. Um, So with that, it was sort of proposed that it might act as a Lewis acid. So it might um, allow the bonding between the electrons better by sort of pulling electron density towards magnesium and therefore making it a bit easier for the sugar and amino acid to interact with each other. Um, but sort of the exact mechanisms of those things aren't super clear across all of the literature. So it's it's interesting that what we saw still supports that in terms of um, their understanding of the chemistry behind it. You also studied what would happen if you added magnesium later in the process. Talk about that. This is where things got really cool. So we had seen this curve in the first five, 10 minutes. And we knew that the bulk of the changes were happening here, but that was also coinciding with when we had spiked in the magnesium. So we were wondering if we added the same amount of magnesium downstream at the 20 minute mark, 40 minute mark, 60, 80 minute marks, would we see the same jump? And it turned out that we didn't see anything, no budging whatsoever of color following those 20-minute, 40-minute, and so on additions of magnesium. So something was going on with uh, the reaction kinetics where um, something was either being used up in the reaction that magnesium was no longer able to drive the reaction forward, or the magnesium itself was being sequestered by one of the reaction products. That's pretty cool. Okay, so what are the implications of this research? So I think when you pick up on that point about the magnesium no longer having an effect after the first five or 10 minutes, uh, what that potentially tells us is that once melanoidins are present at a certain level in the wort, that magnesium is no longer really going to have the impact on color. So it's no longer going to drive these reactions forward. So if you were going to try and use magnesium to drive some of the other impacts that it can have in beer, some of the known impacts like isomerization of, of hop acids. So we know that it can help hop utilization, for example. We know that it can counteract the flocculation and agglomeration um, uh, effects of calcium uh, for yeast. So um, if you wanted to try and counteract that effect in yeast, you can add magnesium. So these are the sorts of things that that magnesium is good for. Uh, People talk about how it creates, you know, a different kind of bitterness and so on as well. So lots of things to explore within beer when you're looking at magnesium. And if you were worried about, you know, creating too much Maillard chemistry with the magnesium additions that you wanted to make, then the trick would probably just be to wait until, yeah, wait until 10, 20 minutes, 30 minutes into your boil and then start adding it. So magnesium is really potentially adding yet another layer of complexity to wort and beer. Yeah, we think that 
the level of magnesium that's present in, in different types of malts and, and adjunct grains as well is something that brewers really need to think about in terms of controlling their end product. We, we, we knew before that it affects uh, hop utilization and, and bittering. We know that it affects yeast, yeast health and viability. Uh, and now we know that it can affect color as well. So for any brewer out there, I think it's uh, really does you a favor to think about where your magnesium stands in your different types of beers. And if you really want that fine control over, uh, you know, say a really light Pilsner color, um, it would it would serve you well to to think about what your magnesium levels are at before designing that recipe. Let's say a maltster wants to use magnesium to drive Maillard reaction. So they go up to 200 ppm or whatever is determined to be high but acceptable. Are they going to notice a bigger gain in pale malts or in malts that are already processed with intent to achieve a lot of Maillard products? Well, that's a really good question, John. I think I can answer that with one part of it anyway. I would say whichever one starts with the higher level of melanoidin is likely going to sequester the magnesium that you add to it before it browns. So you would probably see a greater increase in the pale malt as a result of that, knowing that melanoidins have been found to to sequester transition metals, including magnesium. Yeah. And just to add to that, I think also like, I mean, it's a hypothetical situation, but with metals at that level, like, I mean, in, in the experiments we ran, we were looking particularly at browning. Um, but since we know that the pathway that leads to browning also leads to a whole slew of other compounds that might have sensory implications, even though your malt might be darker, it may have, it may not be like the flavor profile that you're going for. So accelerating the Maillard reaction could, uh, could make your malt pretty brown, but it could make some sort of different flavors that maybe you weren't anticipating as well. How about the brewer? Can the brewer have a significant impact on Maillard reaction if he adds magnesium to the brew kettle? Sounds like yes. Yes. Um, and, and the impact we're seeing is, is in the, on the order of, you know, 100 parts per million magnesium should drive a difference in color of about 0.15, 0.2 SRM. So, you know, if you were going to go significantly higher than that, then, then you would easily be able to see a difference in a lighter colored beer. Could magnesium be a valuable tool for brewers making specialty beers with, say, coffee or some other non-malt ingredient that we might want additional Maillard products from? That's a cool idea. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I guess similarly to what you suggested, that adding it the timing of magnesium being introduced in that process is pretty key um, because with something like coffee, with it already having a lot of those Maillard products in there, again, it might sort of sequester things and slow down any additional browning or or sort of flavor um, contributions there. But yeah, I think it could definitely have an impact um, on increasing Maillard formation. It's just a matter of the, the dose and when. Timing is everything. Yeah. How might yeast nutrient play a role here? I'm not familiar with magnesium being included in a lot of yeast nutrients. Do you know if they are typically, John? I don't know, but I guess I meant more of like, um, you know, you've got a lot of fan coming in with with yeast nutrients, right? So if you kind of, um, if you, you know, if you leverage... Uh, you know, if you're already using yeast nutrient anyway, and then you introduce this magnesium here, like, is that sort of a perfect storm? Yeah, you're certainly going to see a lot more 
wired chemistry going on as a result of an excess of fan. I, I think as long as you start from the assumption that that fan is limiting in these reactions, um, we certainly know that fan gets consumed considerably during Maillard chemistry. So you can see a, a notable decrease in fan as a result of, of Maillard reactions happening either at the kiln in the, in the malting plant or uh, at the boil in the brew house. So yeah, I, I would assume that adding excess fan in the form of yeast nutrient would probably drive a lot more Maillard chemistry. Some of that is going to result in things like uh, hydroxymethyl furfural, uh, furfural um, things that we generally consider as being uh, undesirable, um, while others could um, be considered desirable Maillard products. So things that, that, that lead to pleasant aromas. Um, and based on the style of beer you're aiming for, I think these are things that every brewer should be considering during the recipe design process. Hannah, you've been doing some authentication work in the wine world that sort of spun out of this study. Talk about that. Yeah, for sure. This is, um, yeah, so I basically did this study the year before heading off for my graduate studies in sparkling wine, looking at the Maird reaction. So it was, it was so perfect. Um, but heading into my research here, I was sort of still on this idea of metals and wondering what that does in completely different conditions where there's no heat involved. Um, do metals have an impact? So that was sort of what started off that lane of thought. Um, but first, I wanted to sort of do what we did here and do a survey of metal content in different styles of sparkling wines from all over um, the Niagara region. I'm in Ontario in Canada. Um, so basically, we have a study we're just sending off for peer review in the next few weeks. Um, but we're finding that based on the production method, we can see different metals are higher. So for example, sparkling wines that are fermented in a tank, they're called Charmat method wines. Um, we're seeing higher chromium and nickel content in those wines compared to sparkling wines that are fermented in the bottle. Um, so that sort of indicates that some metals might be useful for authenticity tracing. Um, and with magnesium in particular, uh, in beer, we know that different fertilizers that are used in growing those grains um, can potentially carry through the process. And I know that that was suggested in, I think that was the Bamforth paper, was it, Ewan? That's right. Um, that implicated basically potash fertilizer as the vector for magnesium. Um, so like a potential application of this is looking at breweries that are claiming that they're doing 100% malted grains and maybe running it and seeing that their magnesium levels are just too high for that. or or too low for that, and potentially they're using adjuncts um, as well. So there's sort of a, an element of it that could be used for sort of authenticity tracing or fact-checking um, in terms of what ingredients they say were used versus what was actually used. So yeah. Fermentation forensics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably takes like a little it. more work on, uh, on different metals being you know, analyzed and triangulated within that context, but like totally. in the same way that, that Hannah is talking about with her, uh, with her sparkling wine studies. And then finally, I would just add um, this, this whole thing was just so exciting to see that, you know, that amazing spirit of collaboration that comes out of the craft brewing sector. Anytime anybody's doing something exciting, there were so many breweries across the country, just getting so amped about this whole project. Um, so I just wanted to thank those breweries, um, even the ones, you know, sharing, going as far as sharing their recipe info with us, which was amazing. So um, Russell Brewing Company, La Castor Brewing Company, Blind Man Brewing, Coin Brewing, Two Crows Brewing, 
Lighthouse Brewing, and Sleeman Breweries all uh, provided beer, sent it across Canada to us, uh, shared recipe info in some cases, and we're just really uh, excited about the whole thing. So thanks to all of them. And um, that same spirit of collaboration is leading us to join forces with a whole bunch of craft breweries on finding ways to reverse the overdose crisis right now. So you can check out eachandevery.org and find us on social media. That was Hannah Sharnick and Ewan Thompson here on the Master Brewers Podcast. If you want to learn more about magnesium accelerated Maillard reactions, check the show notes for a link to Ewan's 2020 World Brewing Congress presentation. And don't forget that it's not too late to submit your own abstract for a presentation or poster at the 2021 Master Brewers Conference in Cleveland. If you ran trials at your brewery, if you did something innovative, experienced a major victory, or just solved a problem that another brewer might benefit from hearing about, why not put together a poster or a presentation for the next conference? I can't wait to see what you come up with. Maybe we can even talk about it here on the show. Check the show notes right now for a link on how to get started. I joined District Mid-Atlantic back when it was dominated by large breweries, and I was often one of the only craft brewers in attendance. I'm so glad I joined. That membership has been incredibly impactful to my career, and I've made so many lifelong friends from those meetings. If you're not already a member, I highly encourage you to join. And there's no time like the present because new members can use promo code BEER2021 or the link in the show notes to save 20% on dues. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. 